Well, Grace City Church, thank you so much for your patience this morning as we were experiencing those connectivity issues that can plague us at times. It's when you feel like, ah, I've got no control over something, but here we go. And I want to, if you all at home would give a shout out to the crew that's here today. There are 10 of us here today, including the worship team that, by the way, I was content to let that just go on and on. What what a great worship today, Paula and the team. Thank you so much. Um, for the team behind the camera, though, to make it happen is no small thing. So just want to thank uh, everybody here to make that happen today. It took a lot of perseverance to get online today, so I thank them. Hey, well, it's uh, listen, we're going to celebrate communion today. I'm really looking forward to joining you at the Lord's table. Uh, Corey and I will be celebrating that with you and leading you through that later today. So if you at any point right now, go get your elements. And it can be it can be wine, it can be um, uh, grape juice, it can be bread, it can be crackers, it can be water. Uh, it can be any of those things. But go ahead, have your elements ready, and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes. It's also Women's History Month. Don't forget, tomorrow is International Women's Day. And just use this month to focus uh, on uh, half of the world's population that uh, we can learn and grow our understanding and our embrace that we can be one uh, as men and women around this world. So take advantage of, of this month and the celebration going on. Let's pray and, uh, and we'll get started in today's really important and frankly um, challenging message in James chapter 4 today. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so grateful today that you have given us this moment. And the moment came late, but you are present. You are with us. You are never far away. You are near. We give you thanks, honor, and praise this morning because you are always here for us. We don't have to beg you to come near today and worship. You're here. We just have to turn around, face you, put our arms around you, and say, thank you, Jesus. We thank you for the word uh, that you wrote through your apostle James, and we look forward to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're continuing this morning, church, with James' direction. Remember, we're on set, and James is our director. You see that chair perhaps behind me, or you've seen it, but James is our director. And today, we're talking for the second week in a row about our dialogue, speech, words, our talk. And uh, this is Learn Your Lines, Part 2. That's the title I'm working from today. James wants us to learn our lines. Now, last week in Part 1, we, we studied the theology of talk from James. Go back and see that if you haven't had a chance. And we saw that, that speech is, is a gift of God that is full of creation potential, but also fraught uh, with, um, with destructive appetite because of our humanity. Now, we saw last week, in, in light, especially in light of the ninth commandment, take a look at it on your screen, uh, verse 16 of Exodus 20, that real community uh, depends upon reliable truth-telling. So the ninth commandment says, uh, thou shalt not bear false witness because community depends upon reliable truth-telling. This is a prerequisite. It is no small thing, and it can be very hard to find these days. Our job, we learned last week, is to speak up without tearing down. So we call out utterances that bear false witness, but we call in those with whom we disagree in order to create, maintain, and sustain community. Now, this is hard. How do we speak up and yet not tear down? How do we speak up and build up? How do we call out deceit, yet call in people? In Grace City, it's not simply a matter of good manners. If it was that easy, we'd, we'd get better at it. But we gut the gospel of its impact when we make Jesus too gent gentle, too polite, too patient. He frankly was rarely these. He was and is a perilous kind of alternative presence. 
He is prepared to name names when they do intentional damage to his beloved community. And he is loving, always loving sinners who are prepared to own their own sin. And in the end, he was reckoned an enemy of the state and he was executed. And we're going to actually celebrate his journey to the cross through the Lord's Supper, his last supper before his execution. We're going to celebrate that today. And here's how Jesus led the way for us. He, he, he called, for instance, he called out the Pharisees for their religious hypocrisy. But he called in sinners who were despised by that same hypocrisy. Jesus called out Herod for evil political practice. He called out the financial injustice of the money changers, driving them out of the temple with a whip of all things. Yet he called in people to civil government. And you might say, well, Bob, Jesus can do those things. He's God after all, but we need to calm down. And I hear you, and I hear you. But among many things that's true about Jesus, Jesus means to be a model for how we live and how we talk. So keep this truth in your hip pocket for a minute. This is difficult, complex theology coming from James. This week, James brings us, Corey, to more practical theology around the angry dialogue that goes on pretty consistently among followers of Christ. And James is going to insist, as our director, that we learn our lines. These are our heavenly lines, lines direct from God. Learn your lines so that we can play our part for the sake of the gospel on this side of heaven. And it's going to get uncomfortable for times. And as my brother Corey says, I hope we're still friends at the end today. Now, many followers of Christ have been wounded because of a fight with another believer or a conflict within a church. Some have left churches or even become disillusioned with the faith because of these quarrels. But church, this is not new. A quick study of the early church shows that conflict among believers is not peculiar to our modern day. As a matter of fact, racism and class conflict appeared in the first churches, especially in the dimensions of privilege enjoyed by Jewish believers over the new Gentile converts. Now, James, in his book, is writing as, um, particularly to the scattered Jewish Christians, and he laments the class conflicts that were happening in the church. Corey addressed this um, a couple weeks ago in his sermon on partiality, and he was lamenting the partiality between those of higher uh, rank and lower rank. James talks about work conflicts. Uh, this is coming in chapter 5, and Corey will have this in his sermon in the weeks to come, but where the, the rich are withholding the wages of the poor. And obviously, there are personal conflicts that James talks about, even here in chapter 4, when he talks about how we tend to slander one another. And, for, and church, listen to me. Many of Paul's letters, too, addressed con, con, contradictions and conflict in early congregations. He addressed the legalist zeal in Galatia that did so much damage. He, he talked about the cliques that formed around favorite teachers uh, and even lawsuits that happened in the city of Corinth. In Philippi, as a matter of fact, Paul names names. names. He addresses a public fight between two members of the church in chapter 4. And don't forget this. This is really kind of fascinating and challenging to us. Paul in Galatians calls out Peter and frankly, indirectly, James, and you'll see this in Galatians chapter 2, he calls them out. Look at it on your screen, Galatians 2.11. Paul writes this, I opposed Peter to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Well, imagine Paul posting that on Facebook today, right? I mean, it would cause this incredible stir about the conflict, but conflict existed even in the early church. At the same time he was calling out Peter and James, he was endorsing both to lead the church. He was calling out 
the error and calling in the people. So James, from the midst of the conflict himself, James addresses the church battles that we all experience. He addresses them head on in chapter four as it begins. He wants us to recognize how we go off script, and then he wants us to learn how to go on script and learn the lines that, from the prompts of God. And you know if you've ever been on a set of a, a theater production or a, a film that there's a prompter offstage that is giving you lines when you forget. James is our prompter today too. So first, let's examine what happens when we go off script. Off script is our first point. And James begins chapter four, Corey, asking a very simple question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? And I was going to leave it there for a minute. Take a look at that on your screen. And I know some of you parents of young children are coming up with a list dozens of items long. You could easily say, well, what causes fights and quarrels is Chick-fil-A and who gets the last nugget. But he's talking, James is talking, not so much about our interpersonal experiences that we go through every day, but he's talking about the church. He's talking about followers of Christ. And some of you might want to come type, type on your feed on YouTube today, so we only have YouTube today, type on your feed, preach Pastor James, because this is, this is some of the most relevant commentary and theology that we can possibly get in our world today. It's so relevant. The internal conflict among followers of Christ continues, of course, to flow high and unabated in this season. So let's listen to Pastor James preach for a moment. And good pastors always bring, good preachers always bring context, don't they, Corey? They bring historical, biblical context. And his biblical background this week, James, is the 10th commandment. Last week, it was the 9th commandment. Uh, but the 10th commandment this week is at the center of the notes that he wants to give all of us. Directors give notes. He's giving us his notes. So look at the 10th commandment in Exodus 20, this time verse 17. And it begins this way, you shall not covet. And then there's a list, not meant to be all-inclusive, but rather explanatory and illustrative. But basically, the 10th commandment says, you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. So the grand finale of the Ten Commandments, don't miss it, the grand finale is the forbiddance of covetousness. And James tells us that this is central to our conflict, the conflict among believers. Here it is. Take a look back at James again. Gray City, what causes fights and quarrels among you, he asks, and he goes right to this point that comes from the Tenth Commandment. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You covet, he says, and this causes division. So James is making the argument that the root cause of our unceasing, bitter conflict is nothing other than our off-script desire. Off-God's passions for us, off-script desire is the root of the evil that divides people. Hold on to this for a minute. James is basically setting before us a question, a fundamental question, whether our aim in life is to submit to the will of God on script uh, and, and then uh, to be off script uh, would be when we keep central gratifying our own desires. Are we going to submit to his will or are we going to gratify our own desires? Now, Mary Lou, mostly we think of desire and covetousness in terms of materialism. We, we think of it as wanting things that other people have that we don't have. And, of course, there's something to this. We are driven by such desires at some level. We, we are wanters, Corey. We are wanters, and, and we find ourselves in lots of fights, mostly unseen fights, the kind of internal loathing that toward others that can show up as a verbal war on Facebook or face-to-face. -face. 
We have a sense in us as humans of if onlys, if only, if only I had what others have, if only a certain house or car or salary or physique or spouse or background or spiritual gift or any gift that could help me, any kind of ability, if only we think. It even translates to, if only you thought about this like I do. If only you were as smart as me. If only we covet these kinds of things. We desire and we covet and we become fighters. We fight with others. We fight with God because we are wanters, Lil. We, we want things that are off script in God's kingdom. Now, I say this, and, and listen to me, Grace City Church. It's too many of us, many of, many of us are, are relaxing too much in this portion of the message. Because you're thinking... Well, that's not really me. I don't spend a lot of passion or time thinking about uh, wishing for things that others have that I don't have. I, I, I mean, I'd be great if I won the lottery. That'd be great. I could use a billion dollars. Um, and I'd be good with a billion dollars, Corey. I would. I'd, I'd, I'd be really good with a billion. I'd be better than, than, than Gates and Musk and Winfrey. I, I could do great things. But that being said, I don't spend a lot of energy there. It's, it's just not a thing for me. So, so we... Too often at this portion in this time of James, we sigh and we thank God that we're not like most people and, and we have this mostly under control and we're good to move on and let's have next week's sermon. But there's a corollary kind of desire going on here, Gray City, and we pay far too little attention to it and it can be far more dangerous for many of us and for the social construct and for the community, for the very culture that we're building. It's sort of, Nayla, it's sort of a, a camouflaged covetousness. It's a, I might call it reverse greed, Corey. Here's what I mean. Stay with me. One underexposed tendency for all of us, and I'm going to speak as a, a, psycho, a psychotherapist for a minute. One underexposed tendency for all of us, even in times of peace and calm, is that human beings who already enjoy a certain measure of power and privilege we covet the status quo. When it's working for us, we covet it. We resist change that might impact our status. We'd rather stay in power than share power. We lean toward protecting our privilege more than working for others to enjoy that same privilege. We tend to hoard our place at the table in fear that by inviting you to the table, my place at the table might be threatened. We even go so far as to embracing deception to change or minimize or modify facts that don't look good for me, for my reputation, my legacy, or my history. We, we covet a, a good reputation at the expense of others if we need to. We see it expressed in community just this past week. There's all kinds of January 6th denial going on. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't those people. It, wasn't, it was them. It was not us. This kind of denialism is to try to protect reputation. I even heard one uh, politician speak this week, and he was celebrating. He said, we should rejoice that we're the country that freed the slaves. With no mention of the fact that we're the country that enslaved millions of Africans. Like, to celebrate, it's like the kidnapper goes before the judge and was caught and said, well, I set her free after I stole her. This kind of reverse greed is often more the challenge when it comes to followers of Christ in today's world. You see, envy is not only about wanting what others have. Envy both covets 
and hoards. Let me say that again. Don't miss it. Envy both covets and hoards. Socially, for instance, one reason that white privilege is a thing is because it's always been a thing and we've gotten used to it. You've heard me talk in the past about homeostasis. This is the human condition where we get so used to something, we go back to it, particularly when anxiety rises in the system. We go back to it, whether it's good for us or not. Grace City, we covet sameness when it's working for us. We like being in charge and the privilege that comes with it. And when others, when, when others in this case of white privilege, when others, people of color, protest, advocate, push and pull for the same thing, same status, same privilege that, that I enjoy, our reverse envy, reverse greed, reverse covetousness resists the change to make it happen. And, and it gets so complicated because we can be completely unaware along the way. Uh, we can even see ourselves as helpers while at the same time we're sabotaging the actual systemic change that would advance another people group. It's very confusing and complex at times. This is why Dr. King in his letter from Birmingham jail, it's why this letter is so precious to us. Because he called out moderate, even liberal pastors in the area who were calling, Dr. King, now's not the time. Wait. It's not, wait for more convenience. Wait till people are ready. And Dr. King is saying, we can't wait. We are dying. And, and we tend, particularly from positions of power, to say, let's keep it the same. And we know what this is like personally, too, don't we? We hear of another family or child or ch children of another family's opportunity to gain or win or acquire or be promoted or be honored or be glad about something. And Have you ever wondered why you feel so flat about that in retrospect? About someone else's opportunity to be featured? I, I had an example this week with, um, I was talking with a friend about the YouTube presence of the Kane Mason family. And if you haven't seen it, look it up, the Kane Mason family. And it's these seven brilliant yet children, brilliant musicians who are moving onto the world stage for this beautiful music. And, uh, and this person said to me after, after one of the videos, seeing the video, says, said, I hate that family. Now, it was chuckling, but, but it was the envy. It was the... It was, they, they've got this, they've got something that I don't have. Church, the, the New Testament is clear that our overarching desire for holding on to pleasure and privilege in this world is always a threat to individual, spiritual, and community life. Always. Jesus taught it in the parable of the seed. Do you remember? You'll see it on your screen in Luke 8. But he taught that the cares and riches and pleasures and privilege of this life combine to choke out the good seed. And Paul wrote that anyone can become a slave to passions and pleasures, and when they do, malice and envy enter into life. And you see that in Titus 3. Jesus himself, I'm sorry, James himself has just said in chapter 3, look at this, if you harbor bitter envy, reverse envy, real envy, and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. For where you have these, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Church, the scripture does not feature this so we might be kind and polite. It's actually so we might thrive. And this is something we all need to take to heart. 
It's not just let's be nice to each other. It's let's help the human community thrive. Let me give you a picture of this reverse envy that all of us can get our arms around without any particular political or theological threat in this world. And I'm going to speak again as a, as a psychologist in this. Like As a psychologist, we, I would call it uh, reverse envy. Sociologists would call it opportunity hoarding. hoarding. Now listen, remember, both envy, and, both envy both covets and hoards. Both covets and hoards. So we covet when we resist change that benefits the other, someone who's not like me because we're afraid it'll somehow undercut us. But the opposite is in fact true. It's not that it'll undercut us at all, and it's not that it stays neutral, it's, it's the opposite. Let me show you how. In 1972 in Berkeley, California, they installed their first curb cut. You know what a curb cut is, is when you cut away the curb and make sort of a ramp so that there's access to the sidewalk and the street. And this became the slab of concrete heard around the world, because this is, this is one way in, that changed our country uh, it changed how we think about access and opportunity for the disabled population who face barriers at every turn. So hundreds of more curb cuts followed in Berkeley and then hundreds of thousands all across the country. And disability advocates continued to push for the access that many Americans like me take for granted uh, and pushed into access into sidewalks and classrooms and dorm rooms and restrooms and buses. But resistance, resistance was high. And you might, you might be amazed by that. But the political debate was angry and divided, and it created divides that would remind you of the div our, our divisiveness today. And then at last, on July 26, 1990, President Bush, George H.W. Bush, signed the Americans with Disabilities Act, and you know it as the ADA, which mandated changes to the built environment, including curb cuts. Um, and, and, and he said this in signing the bill, let the shameful wall of exclusion finally come tumbling down. I love that. And church, listen to me, a magnificent and unexpected thing happened. As that wall of exclusion came down, everybody benefited. Not only people in wheelchairs, but parents pushing strollers, headed straight for the curb cuts. So did workers leveraging carts, travelers wheeling luggage, runners and skateboarders, and so many more. Why was there so much resistance to good change? Because, listen, church, there is an ingrained... Sinful, human, and societal suspicion that if we intentionally support one group's access, it will somehow curtail my access. But Scripture teaches something exactly the opposite. When you create conditions that allow the most vulnerable to partner, prosper, and participate fully, everybody wins. Proverbs 11 says, it's not on your screen, just stay with me. It says, Solomon writes, a generous person will prosper. Wow. Whomever refreshes others will be refreshed. Wow. Now listen, the corollary is also true. When we ignore the challenges faced by the most marginalized among us, those challenges, those inequities, magnified many times over through time and space, will diminish all of us. It'll be the opposite of thriving, and we see it with our constant divisiveness, our constant eroding of human connectivity. When that happens, everybody loses. But Jesus says, invest in the marginalized, everybody wins. All right, so how does this grow us and overcome our selfish desire that, that covets privilege and hoards privilege? And James says, stay with us. Stay, stay on script. Stay on script. Watch this as James continues with the warning about hard, how hard it is to stay on God's script. Look at James 4, 2, and 3. You do not have, he says, because you do not ask. He's talking about prayer. 
When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you might spend what you get on your pleasures. And in Grace City, he is talking about prayer, and Corey's going to go into this in more detail in the next couple of weeks. But here, James reminds us by implication that the true end of prayer is always, thy will be done. But it's one of the grim facts of church life and followers of Christ that left to ourselves, we hardly ever pray like that. We hardly ever do. And James is saying that no one can ever pray effectively until they remove self from the center and put God there. So what stops our fights and quarrels? Well, James goes on in verses 4 and 6. Through six, take a look. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. He jealously longs, he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us. Now, at first glance, you might think that the solution to quarrels and fights lies in stopping our covetousness. Stop being worldly. Stop wanting. We think that if our hearts are desire-free, our lives will be conflict-free. And this might be theoretically true, and through the years, monks and various ascetics through the centuries have tried this with varying success. But this is not really a, the human condition. It's not a thing for human beings to, to not want. As a matter of fact, the scripture we just read, God himself, do you see it? Jealously desires, verse 5. And because we're created in God's image, we desire too. We cannot not desire. There's no off switch. We can't power down our desires. The issue becomes not stopping it, but replacing our desires with godly desires. Not, not it's not stopping it. It's not erasing them. Not erasing them. And it says at the end there in verse 6, he gives grace to do this. So we press in deeper with James as he prompts us to get on script. Look at verses 7 to 10. Submit. I won't read all of it, but a little bit. You see it. Submit yourselves then to God. Come near to God. He'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. This is great preparation for the Lord's table, by the way. It goes on. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he'll lift you up. There's a trade going on here, a trade-in of desires. Do you see it? James wants us to trade our desires and surrender to God's. And this is so hard. It's, it, it, it's grievous. It causes grief. What replaces our covetousness and stops our fights, church, is our proximity to God. Come near to God, and he'll come near to you. What supplants our fights is, is our wanting who he is. What displaces our battles is our wanting to be like Jesus. The solution to our conflicts is not stopping our desire. The solution is to be awakened to new desires that reflect heaven. It's to get on script with the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This prayer of Jesus is so important that we begin to mirror on earth what we know to be true in heaven, where we're all headed. Listen, Grace City, James tells us here that God's presence is guaranteed when we take ownership of our sin, where our souls are broken, washed in humility, refocused toward God. For example, people ask me, Quite often, why do you talk about race and gender and class so much, Bob? Why is it in your sermons? And I say, it's because this is where I have to own my stuff. This is the house I live in. This is the table I sit at. This is the legacy I have. And to own the sinful parts of that is my job as a follower of Christ. So that's why I talk about it. James says two things are, are required to own our sin and go on script with God. And this will take us to the table. In his godly, in his call for godly sorrow, did you see it in the scripture? Grieve, mourn, and wail. Jesus is, or James is simply going back to Jesus' words. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's in Matthew 5, 4. You see it on your screen. Don't 
don't read into this something James is not saying. He's, he's not denying the joy of the Christian life. You all know me. I got plenty of joy in the Christian life. But he is pleading for us to surrender to the new reality, to the understanding that, that without the grace of God, without the cross of Christ, without the table we're heading to, we are lost without that. And there is great grief there, Corey, to, to, to surrender to the fact that on our own, by ourselves, we can never come close to God because of our sin. There's grief there. We love to think, I got this down. I can do this. To give that up, to surrender that, grieve, mourn, and wail, James says. And then finally, his call for godly humility is related to this. Don't miss it. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he'll lift you up. James is once again the systematic theologian reminding us of the biblical mandate that only, only the humble will know the blessings of God. And we live in a world that is saying humility is overrated. Pick, you know, lift up yourself, feature yourself, never apologize. It's the opposite of the gospel message. We see it most beautifully perhaps expressed in Psalm 51. Take a look. One of my favorite Psalms from the time I met the Lord at 14 years old. My sacrifice, God, is a broken spirit, broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Jesus himself repeatedly declared, look at Luke 14, for instance, that the one who humbles themselves alone will be exalted. So with Jesus firmly in mind, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. If you haven't gotten your elements, now's a good time to do it. And as we come to the table, Corey and I will meet you there in just a minute. But listen, the follower of Christ must come with humility. But church, this humility that James is calling us to, it gives us relentless courage because of the cross of Christ. Isn't that amazing? that humility actually gives us incredible, deep, profound courage. Grace City, when we finally understand our essential helplessness, then we understand the script, the lines that we must learn and never forget. God's script, our words, our talk, our speech is all about the body and blood of Jesus. All of our human dialogue is at its best under the cross of Christ. That's where our lines lie. That's where the better word lies. And after we celebrate the Lord's Supper, stay on for worship because we're going to sing a song called Better Word that for many of you will be new. The Better Word. So let's go to the table. We'll meet you there in just a few seconds.